Today on Cross Defense, we're talking about how so many Christians are confused and led astray by the false teaching of dispensationalism, not to mention other errors. But how? By insisting that we stick to the plain meaning of the Bible's text. The principle's right, sure, but their application of it is way wrong. We're getting into that right here, right now, on Cross Defense. Mary Rose wrote in noting that Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is loaded with biblical references that today need to be noted to be understood. Stay tuned to the end of the show to hear her message as I connect it with today's conversation about the plain, not simplistic, meaning of the Bible. Welcome to Cross Defense, my friends. This is the show that aims to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of that goodness with God's Word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm the pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California, where, get this, my friends, get this, when we study the Bible, we actually look at the full context of the passage in order to arrive at the plain meaning of the text. It's true. If during the course of the show you want to send us your comments, your questions, or your bits of biblical brilliance, well, we'd love to hear from you. So go to stmarksferndale.com slash contact. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S, ferndale.com slash contact, and drop us a line. And if you want to share this show with a friend, well, we wouldn't mind if you did that either. You guys are indeed the best. And as a bonus, I'm going to try to get through this show without sniffling in your ear. My allergies are raging today, so uh, hopefully... The magic of editing will save you from the disgust that could be here. (laughs) What do we read, guys? What do we read in Acts 8.27? And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is verse 27 to 31. Now, Turn with me to 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. What does Peter say there? And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Dear saints, these two passages help us understand something crucial for a conversation on why so many Western Christians today have fallen for and even propagate the dispensational lie that modern events involving the nation-state of Israel are central to understanding end-times prophecy. How so? Well, good question. Are you familiar with what we call 
hermeneutics. These are the principles of interpretation that we use to understand the Bible. The historic Christian church adheres to the historic rules of interpretation. We abide by them for fidelity's sake, to remain faithful to the Bible, to not impose upon the Bible what we wanted to read. Now, if you've never heard of this, or if you're just looking for a quick ready access resource, I'm going to leave a link to a page here on St. Mark's website, so that if you want to refer to what these, these hermeneutical principles are later, you can do so. Here's what they are. They're one. Stick with the plain meaning of the text, and that's what we're talking about in today's episode. Two, Scripture interprets Scripture. Three, pay attention to the context. Four, read the text in light of the rule of faith. That is, from the idea that the Bible builds us up in the faith. It wasn't recorded to cause you doubt. Five, interpret Scripture Christologically. Six, so very, very important to the reformation of the church, to rightly understanding the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. The sixth principle is to rightly distinguish between law and gospel, which so many Christian churches today get wrong. They portray the law as if it's gospel, and they minimize the gospel until there's nothing left but law, uh, ad infinitum. Okay, so the Acts 8 passage and the Second Peter passage demonstrate that a plain reading of the text does not mean a simplistic, literalist, chronologically ignorant or chronologically arrogant interpretation of the Bible. What do I mean by chronological ignorance, chronological arrogance? Well, chronological ignorance is, is not knowing. That's what the word ignorance means, is to not know. It's Ignorant isn't a derogatory term. It's not an insult the way you might use it. Like, that person's so ignorant. Well, they may be not knowing, but we don't have any sort of negative tone in our voice when we're saying that. We're using it in its actual meaning of the word. So chronological ignorance is not knowing what occurred in history chronologically, according to the the chronological unfolding of human events, the timeline, so to speak, being ignorant of the historical context in which the biblical texts were given. Ignorance makes us extremely vulnerable to false teaching. Chronological arrogance, well, that's what the leftists do. (laughs) It's what the unfaithful denominations that smear Jesus' name do with their historical criticism. It's the the year argument. I I don't know what this argument is officially called. It probably has an official name. It's the year argument is what I call it. You know, something like uh, homosexuality isn't bad. I mean, love's love, right? Come on, guy. It's, It's 2023 after all. It's not 1950 anymore. See, the year argument. The arrogance is in thinking that we're somehow better in 2023 than we were in in 1950, that we somehow uh, are more enlightened, that we know more than the people of the past. So, of course, we know better than they did how to read the Bible. And then the Bible starts to change. 
we start to interpret it differently out of a arrogance and arrogance, a hubris that makes us vulnerable to false teaching. And this false teaching, be it from ignorance or from arrogance or a combination of the two, as sinners, leads us to misread the Bible. We do this by reading into the biblical text our own extra-biblical views, what we want it to say. This is called eisegesis. We come to the Bible with our own presuppositions, our own baggage, our own biases, and we draw from it not what it says, but what we want it to say, validating our, our already conceived conclusion, confirming our bias, confirmation bias, right? Which is horrible to do anyway, but especially to do with the scriptures. We, we draw from the text what we've been led to believe it says because of someone else's presuppositions, perhaps, someone else's biases, a pastor, a, a theological teacher on YouTube, perhaps, <laughs> something like that, which is why I always tell you, turn me off and go listen to your pastor. Go ask him questions. Go engage with the real, live human who was called to serve you. No feelings will be hurt, I promise. This is why we ought to always, dear saints, be like the Bereans in Acts 17.11. So even if you don't turn me off right now, and even if you, you like to follow up with YouTubers online and, and listen to different podcasts and stuff, make sure, make sure you are always listening according to Acts 17.11. Because even pastors can lead people to import false meaning onto the Bible's message. Be like the Bereans. They received the word of St. Paul with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul said were so. They didn't take it at face value. They didn't, they didn't go with the easiest reception of that word. Oh, he says it and he's the teacher, so we must go with him, that kind of a thing. They actually did the work. Now, we're going to talk about learned expert type teachers, pastors, people with degrees and, and lifelong histories. In just a minute, I'm going to give you an example. And I don't want you to see this example, to hear this example as comparing lay study and clerical study. The example is going to be study versus no study. Okay. All right. But before we get to that, perhaps you're familiar with Matthew 22 verses 23 to 33. The same day, Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, these Sadducees do, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read 
what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. We too, dear saints, can be guilty of knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Indeed, we are. As a confessional Lutheran pastor with a, I guess I could say, sketchy religious upbringing, I have many relatives who fit your your typical unchurched, lukewarm, if not ice-cold, American evangelical or Jack Catholic stereotype. Absolutely. Through and through, all of them. They don't really go to church. But most of them do claim to believe in Jesus when talking to Christians. Though conveniently, they never really bring the Lord up any other time. Some are gay. Some are womanizers. Some engage in extramarital sex. That's the norm among many of my relatives. Some are engaged in or recovering from drug problems, alcoholism, things like this. Most of them only darken the door of a church at funerals or when a family member is getting married for the second or third time. You know how this is. This is not a shock. This is not scandalous to hear a pastor say, this is life in America today. My family and yours. Now, I made a conscious decision as a young man, by the grace of God, his doing all the way, to repent of the worldly life decisions that many of my family and my friends were making, and instead to attend the divine service weekly, to go to Bible study too, and to hang around other devout Christians instead of my atheist punk rock buddies instead of my worldly family members. By the wisdom of Scripture, by the grace of God, I repented of living like the world daily and spent more and more time with Christians, most of them older and much wiser than myself. And guess what, Christian? This led me to going to college to earn a B.A. in religious studies, where I studied the Scriptures in the original languages after learning how to read those original original languages, learning how to read Hebrew, how to read Greek. And then next, I went to seminary. That was what the whole point of getting that religious studies degree was about, so I could get into seminary where the study of Scripture was intense and constant for four years. Good stuff. It's a great way to live. I highly recommend it. But despite those seven years, I did my undergrad in three, not four, a formal education, the subsequent nine-ish years of an ordained ministry coming up on 10, and up to this point, something like 23 years of regular daily study of God's word. Despite all that, when I talk with one of my relatives, one of my old friends from, from the old days, about the Bible, they usually act as if their spontaneous thought on the text or the topic is equal to mine. Any topic in Scripture. They usually act like they can give me their opinion on the text 
and I should receive it as if it's just as valid as my thoughts on it after a lifetime at this point, adult lifetime of thinking about these things. Think of the ignorance and the arrogance at play here. Where's the humility in that? Now, speaking of humility and ignorance and arrogance, I'm not boasting. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm not trying to to put myself on a pedestal. This has nothing to do with me. You could fill in your pastor's name right here in this story. He has the same story. Or you yourself, if if you've been, uh, you know, through any sort of lengthy, strenuous study of Scripture, if you've dedicated your time to reading the Bible in a way where you could grow from it for any given time, this is a story about you and the difference between you, Christian, and the nominal Christian, the one who calls himself a Christian, or the the atheist or the the non-Christian who really gives it no thought until it comes up in a topic around a campfire or at the coffee shop or something, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he's an expert on it, right? So it's not about that. I'm just I'm talking to you from a place of experience, but it's the same experience you have. It's a lived example of a point most of us can relate to. I'm sure about that. Now, why is it that the focused, intentional, quality, and lifelong study of Scripture is dismissed as meaningless when brought into comparison with the casual, haphazard, and spontaneous look at the Bible. Why is that? Why is this phenomenon a thing? (laughs) This is what I'm asking. Uh, The same thing happened just this last week here at St. Mark's. We had our Freedom of Conscience and Religious Liberty Conference. It was excellent. The Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz gave a three-hour talk on authority, conscience, and education. I'll be posting a video, that video, on my YouTube channel as soon as it's done being edited. And during the Q&A at the very end of the conference, after listening to Dr. Kuntz for three hours, a woman who identified herself as inclined toward Calvary Chapel errors, she didn't say errors, that's my part of it, raised her hand and began to insist that her view on what he had to say was right. That her, her rebuttal to his words after the last three hours that her view should be taken as seriously as what he just presented. She had a very unique and unbiblical view of baptism, among other things, and it, it was weird. But, but one position stated after faithful preparation, prayerful study, and careful delivery, that would be the position from the ordained minister, Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz, and the other position was a spontaneous thought during a Q&A. Why? Would the two of these positions ever be considered equal? Why would anyone see her view as more credible than Reverend Kuntz's? But that's the case that is very plausible in our day and age, that her view could be considered with equal weight to Reverend Kuntz's. One of the major factors in answering this question is this misunderstanding of what the hermeneutic principle of sticking to the plain meaning of the text means. So let's take our first break. When we come back, we'll go deeper into this before we start meeting it out in relation to Israel and end times prophecy. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense. Iron sharpens iron. 
and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Cross Defense. We're going deeper into answering this question of why these two positions, the uh, the learned and, and thoughtful, prayerful position, and then the spontaneous position, why they could ever be considered as holding equal weight in the deliberation on a theological topic. Well, the reason we're going deeper is because this has everything to do with why so many people think that the nation state of Israel has something to do with end times prophecy. The plain meaning of the text is our central focus for today's show. And what I mean is, why is casual, unlearned thoughts on the Bible, why do do they hold just as much weight in our minds as the conclusion of lifelong faithful study? Now, toward the deeper understanding, you may not know this, but Darwinism, yes, Darwinism, didn't take a hard right turn here, so bear with me, we're still on topic, Darwinism has a lot to do with why your dispensational premillennialist friends read the Bible the way they do. Darwinism's influence on the sciences, including the science of biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, causes dispensationalists from John Nelson Darby all the way down to Tim LaHaye and today's YouTubers and your average American evangelical to overemphasize the precision of biblical language. Let me say that again. Darwinism causes premillennial dispensationalists, your friends who believe in the left behind story, to overemphasize the precision of biblical language. And you're like, wait a minute, shouldn't the Bible be precise? Well, the Bible is clear and does speak directly, but it isn't precise in the way that maybe empirical science would be precise. The perceived threat of the scientific age, it puts pressure on dispensationalists historically, and then also down to today's age, to insist that the Bible's language is as precise as it possibly could be. And that's just not true. The figurative language of prophecy is hard, extremely hard for dispensationalists to deal with because of the strength of presuppositions that come from our Darwinian culture. These Christians have a fear, whether they can articulate it or not, this thought process, this theological position has a fear of subjectivity. One that many of us rightly share to a certain degree. It's good to be fearful, cautious of subjectivity as opposed to objectivity. Subjective truth when it should be objective truth. But there is a place for subjective understanding of texts and people and opinions and these sorts of things. 
But as the church entered modernity, many of the mainline denominations, they did a horrible thing. They surrendered objective truth for the relative personal relationship gibberish that matured into post-modernity. This didn't hit our own Missouri Synod like it did like it hit the reformed mainline churches in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We were, we were somewhat sheltered from this because of our strong biblical position. We even, we even defended ourselves against this relativism, this higher criticism, this, this uh, loosening of objectivity as late as the 1970s with Seminex. You're familiar, I'm sure. We, I can't say we've done as well as we could have since then, but we've done better than many, many churches. Unfortunately, we have more that we could be doing on this front. But let's not hang our hat there. Our staunch stance on Scripture alone as the norming authority on our lives, as Missouri Synod Lutherans, as confessional Lutherans, has protected us greatly against moral relativism, against subjectivism, all of this stuff that hit the mainline denominations and fueled the dispensationalists' appeal to the plain meaning of the text. This would be well, this would be good, if their understanding of the plain meaning of the text was right. The principle is right, but the application of it is extremely wrong. Now, we are creeping up to our problem regarding Israel and end times prophecy, but our main focus is going to be to understand that the simplistic understanding of the text is not synonymous with the plain understanding of the text. There's a difference. So let's use today's LGBTQism claim. This claim that homosexuality is not a sin today. The ELCA priestesses, they're going to hold a thrivent sponsored pride event. And they're going to declare, try to teach others, that the word homosexual isn't even in the Bible. Now you know the verse, I've talked about this on Cross Events before, 1 Corinthians 6, that says, or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and so on. Homosexual isn't even in that verse, they say. And they get us confused, and they get you wondering. If we stick to the plain meaning of the text, well, then we can't say homosexuality is a sin. Why? Well, because homosexuals not in the text. That was some addition or some in, uh, translation error or something. We got to get to the plain meaning of the text. See the problem? They want you to read the Bible the same way the premillennial dispensationalists do, which is probably why we're we're seeing the the Protestant world, Big Eva, slowly but surely embrace LGBTQism. They're not sticking to the plain meaning of the text though they claim to be. What they're sticking to is a simplistic meaning of the text at the expense 
of the other hermeneutic principles. Simplistic and plain aren't synonymous. When we look at this text in light of other passages, such as Romans 1, and in accordance with the rule of faith, while paying attention to the context, we see that, sure, the word homosexual isn't in verse 9. You got us. Absolutely not there. But malakos and arsenokoitis are. I think I said that last word right. And so Paul is even clearer in the Greek than he is in the English. Both the passive, the effeminate receiver of the homosexual act is excluded from the kingdom of God, as well as the masculine sodomizer that's engaged in the active role of the sin. Plain is not simplistic. The plain meaning is abundantly clear. Homosexuality is a sin. The simplistic meaning is intentionally, chronologically ignorant and arrogant. Because of the rampant subjectivity in the modernist churches, the breakaway movements like John Nelson Darby's Brethren Movement and your local non-denominational church gained momentum. It was a populist move away from the existing authorities who had, to their shame, led the people away from the truth of Scripture in a way that was similar to what I just demonstrated there with the homosexuality word. See, it sounds good to appeal to the plain meaning of the text, and that is good. It sounds more objective. It is more objective, because that's where you'll find unadulterated truth, right? Right. If it is truly objective. But the way it's used, the way it's applied, isn't truly objective. As we've already touched on, the practice of what the plain meaning of the text means is askew. They're not applying it right. Not to mention that it's unmoored from other hermeneutic principles. This isn't the only principle of interpretation at play. All of them are, all the time. So take the average person. Take one of my my relatives, perhaps, or one of my old punk rock buddies, or, or, or one of yours, Reverend Kuntz's Q&A debater, maybe. We rightly tell these people that one of the rules of reading the Scripture is to stick to the plain meaning of the text. So when we do that, when you, when you tell them that's how we have to read the Bible, what do you think they will think? How are they going to hear your words? Do you think the unchurched and the uncatechized, the nominal Christian or the completely rejecting atheist will think that means he's to read the Bible in its original historical context, which he knows little to nothing about, right? And which is going to take some actual effort to grasp. Or do you think he'll consider the plain meaning to be the simple meaning? The, the meaning that first comes to mind, that pops into your head when you hear the words, because that requires no effort, it requires no comprehension, and it's, it's basically influenced by his 21st century context, his own personal presuppositional context, right? Which one is going to seem like the plain meaning of the text on any given day? The one that requires less work or more work. 
Yeah, see, to lay dispensationalists, and sadly to most Western lay people in the Christian church, regardless of how they might be classified, which denomination they might be attached to, the plain meaning of the text is the meaning that they automatically see in the passage when they read it. And that automatic meaning is flowing from their current cultural backdrop and from whatever background of teaching that they've received, whether whatever uh, church they've been attending, whatever YouTube videos they've been watching or podcasts they've been listening to, movies they've been taking in, whether actively or passively, these things can be absorbed. And this is why my experience with the Word of God means diddly squat to my relatives. It's why Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz, his learned position caused no pause for the woman of a Calvary Chapel background. Everyone can read the Bible just like anyone else. If we're supposed to take the plain meaning of the text, well then, what does it matter if you're fresh off the street and haven't given the text a lick of thought ever? Or if you've spent your whole adult life studying the scriptures? It all boils down to the plain meaning of the text. It's all the same thing, right? And so in our current climate, the Bible is regarded as a book that's been written directly to whoever picks it up without any awareness of historical context, without any awareness of of the original receivers of the books in the Bible. This actually means that a learned, faithful teacher of the word, he actually loses when faced with hip shooter McGee, who's just spouting off her opinion. Because the simpler, more ignorant, and therefore more arrogant, more subjective one's understanding is, the more that guy's likely to be right, according to this new understanding of the plain meaning of the text. See how it's a downward spiral? It makes everything worse. Everything comes apart. And this is what has come of American Christianity. And this is a big part of the anti-clericalism that plagues the church today. Why people don't want to listen to their pastor. Who needs a pastor? When we've, we've changed, stick with the plain meaning of the text to stick with the simplistic meaning of the text. You don't need someone like Philip to help the Ethiopian eunuch understand the text. Just open it up and read it. This dispensationalist appeal to the plain meaning of the text is so prevalent among so many groups today that it goes so far as to as to teach or to imply that if if someone anyone deviates from dispensationalist teaching he or she is often seen as deviating from the bible itself aka being led astray this friend is a significant reason why so many american evangelical churches are theologically shallow It makes everything into a flat, literal presentation. Precise, 
keep up with scientism. Cold. It's it's the, the literary equivalent of misgendering the Bible to speak like the world. It takes all of the parabolic, figurative, spiritual, poetic imagery of the Bible and it cuts it off like, like a double mastectomy on a 14-year-old. It's awful and it leaves flat what was intended to give shape to the truth. Let's leave it right there for our second break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation on the plain meaning of the text and how to rightly apply this principle, especially in light of the Israeli war against Hamas. We'll be right back. Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Can you imagine the situation? Assuming he was willing, the pastor isn't able, according to this new version of sticking with the plain meaning of the text, to take his congregation into a deep study of Scripture because that would defy how the laity have learned to understand the Bible. It's not a complex and rich text full of many mysteries and exciting aspects for the serious student to study. No, it's now a simple book anybody can pick up and understand cold. In fact, better yet, the better way to read it, (laughs) yeah, the better way to read it is just to randomly open it up. And like the good little enthusiasts that we've all been trained to be, import some spiritual meaning to the aimless page that we find ourselves on, Because what's the plain meaning of opening up to this passage, we ask? I mean, what does it mean to me, right? Based on my personal presuppositions and, and personal baggage, what emphasis can I force upon the words that I can say mean something? Because I just opened them up, and it must have some sort of spiritual significance, because why else would God allow me to open the Bible to this spot, to this page? It must have some significance for what I'm going through today, like it's some fortune cookie. Plainly, God must have wanted me to open the Bible to this particular verse. No, that's dumb. But you might ask, why wouldn't God make everything simplistic, Pastor? Shouldn't we we think that God would make everything simple so we'd understand it readily? Well, Reverend Robert Preuss brings up this exact question In the inspiration of Scripture, a study of the theology of the 17th century Lutheran dogmaticians. Yes, I know, riveting stuff. He studied the the dogmaticians, those who who cataloged and, and organized the doctrines that developed the articulation of the Lutheran doctrine that developed from the Reformation. Reformation happened in the 16th century. These guys... Coming along 100 years later, they're taking all of the, the, the things that have settled from the dust and they're saying, how does this work itself out 
dogmatically. And he studied that. And he literally asks that why did God allow any passages in Scripture to remain unclear? And he answers, the dogmaticians in the 17th century make no attempt to answer this question categorically, but they do offer certain reasons which they think may be plausible. Huh. So just like a good Christian, we say only what we know. We don't add more to the text. We don't take away from the text. We speak what we read. Okay, so we can apply that to the Bible as we do, and we also can apply that to the study of other theologians, not putting words in their mouth. All right, I like me some Pastor Preuss. Good dead theologians. They're awesome. I keep telling you guys, I love me some dead Lutheran theologians. They're stellar. Number one, Reverend Preuss says, that we might all the more diligently search the scriptures. Why might God not make the Bible perfectly clear all the time so that we might be prompted to diligently search the scriptures? If it's not simple, you got to get into it. Number two, that we might be given no occasion for contemning, that is, despising the sacred writings because of their simplicity. If they were too simple, we might think of the scriptures as not being valuable, right? Number three, that all human pride and arrogance might be quenched. <laughs> the scriptures are not simple, so they will humble us, dear saints. Number four, that we might be reminded of our congenital blindness in spiritual matters, that we were born fallen, sinful people, that we don't think like God, that we don't know everything God knows, that we are blind and we need to receive eyes that see. Number five, that we might approach Scripture with reverence and with a prayer that we grow in sanctification, in our being made holy, complex, rich, scripture, that takes some work to understand, that takes some study to know, that takes continually being in the word on Sunday morning in the divine service, it gives you a sense of reverence. And you approach that text, you approach God's word with prayer, that he would continue to make you holier and holier, that you would understand what he is communicating. Six, that we might strive the more zealously for a fuller knowledge of Scripture. <laughs> that we would rise up to the challenge, that we would strive zealously to know our Bibles. I love it. I love it. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a layman, dear saints, we're all to read the Bible, not according to a simplistic meaning of the text. No, no but according to the plain meaning of the text. Okay, so are you ready to bring all of this to bear on the Israeli war against Hamas? The simplistic reader of the Bible sees the nation-state of Israel as the same thing as the biblical Israel. In his effort to read the signs of the end times, he divorces them 
from their historical context, these end-time signs. When he reads the Bible, he reads the Bible like a book that was written entirely for the modern person, for himself. He doesn't think about the original readers of the scriptures or anybody in between. For our simplistic reader of the Bible, in the case of this, this Israeli war against Hamas, the Bible is where he goes to find what he's already determined, predetermined to find. And, and not just for the Israeli war, but you get this with blood moons and all the, all the kinds of stuff, right? All the end time signs. A wicked generation seeking signs. He's going to the text to find what he has already determined is his conclusion, to confirm his bias, his biases. That it, he could find out that, that prophecy is, has been fulfilled or is being fulfilled right now in his lifetime. How exciting is that? Yes, that's what I want. I want to be living in that, that time. I want to be living when this thing happens or that thing happens, and I'm going to look for the scriptures to tell me that what I want is what's happening. Instead, instead of seeing that Ezekiel 37 is about the Old Testament Jews returning to the Holy Land after the Babylonian captivity, like the real Babylonian captivity, the literal Babylonian captivity, not the figurative one, but the real one, the simplistic reader sees it as having to do with the formation of the modern nation-state of Israel after World War II. He doesn't even give two rips about the historical context. He could care less what was going on with Israel in the Old Testament. When God gave Ezekiel the words of his prophecy, the nation of Israel had been overcome by the Babylonians. Ezekiel was himself exiled. He was part of the dispersion. If we wanted to stick with the plain meaning of the text, as well as, as all the other principles of interpretation, instead of the simplistic meaning of the text, well, then we would read that Ezekiel 37 isn't about Israel after World War I and World War II from 1917 and then, then May 14th, 1948, but the return of the Jewish people to the land, the Holy Land, after the 70 years of the historic Babylonian captivity, the same content described in Jeremiah 25, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declared the Lord making the land an everlasting waste, verses 11 and 12. Or, or how about Daniel 9.2? I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, <laughs> 70 years. The plain reading of the Bible, it illuminates that the literal fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, 12, I will bring you into the land of Israel, occurred in Old Testament Israel's day. It needs not be connected to the nation state of Israel, <laughs> today's nation state, but is actually, as all scripture is written about Jesus. It's written for our understanding, our spiritual understanding, that the New Testament Israel 
Today's Israel is actually Christ's church. It's not, it's not a nation state. It's the church, which is, as the introduction of 1 Peter makes clear, in exile. Take a look at 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. We are the exilic, dispersed Israel today. We are the church living in the dispersion. The 12 tribes in the dispersion is how James says it in James 1.1. That's about the church. You are part of Israel today, Christian. The plain meaning of the text is informed about the context of the words. That's what it means to read the Bible from the plain meaning of the text. It means to be informed of what Scripture says. It means to know Scripture and the power therein. It means to not take the simple easy path of, well, I think this means this for me today. No. What did it mean originally to its original hearers? How has the church always understood this to mean this thing? What has the church always understood it to mean? That's the plain meaning of the text. Seeing that the Old Testament Israel is a foreshadowing of the Christian church is the plain meaning of the text. As St. Paul says in Colossians 2.17, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Old Old Testament stuff was a shadow of the thing to come. The substance that casts the shadow is Jesus. Israel in the Old Testament is a shadow of the new Israel, the, the real Israel, if you will, Christ's body. Christ is Israel. And in Hebrews 8, we read, now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Talking about Jesus here, right? Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain because it's a shadow of the thing to come. It's a sign that points to Jesus. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. And then you could go ahead and you can read chapter 8, all all of chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. Read, Read the whole book. Read the whole Bible. You'll see this. It's plain, and everything is about Christ. The nation state of Israel, guys, it's not significant to the prophecies. That's the story. They're reading it in a simplistic way, the text. And they're coming away with conclusions that have been taught to them, handed down since the dispensationalists arose, And it keeps getting peddled. 
and taught, and it's wrong. Okay, so before we run out of time, we got to get to Mary Rose's email. She says, hello, Pastor Bramwell. Thank you for your program, Cross Defense, and for speaking the truth in love. I'm a fangirl. Hey, (laughs) well, thanks, Mary Rose. I have a topic suggestion for a future show that I wanted to share with you. It seemed to come up frequently for me the last week, which leads me to believe that it's topical and relevant. The subject is biblical illiteracy. Here's a little context. Our town's library is having a great fall read for the month of October, where patrons are encouraged to read the same book and participate in trivia contests, crafts, discussions, etc., The chosen book was The New Annotated Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, with annotations from Leslie Klinger. I read the book and was surprised by the many biblical references that RSL included. He referenced the prisoners of Philippi, the Babylonian finger on the wall, the city of refuge, the war among his members, and more. Each time, the annotator had to include a footnote explaining to the reader that this was connected to a Bible passage, and then citing book, chapter, and verse. No doubt, in RSL's day, his readers would have known all the references as soon as they read them. But in our day, the average reader is so ignorant of the Bible that these passages would have gone right over their heads. It makes me wonder... How many high school English teachers and college lit professors have to explain to their students because they have no knowledge of the Bible for context? A few years back, I read the book Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't by Stephen Prothero. He paints a pretty sad picture of our culture and its lack of knowledge regarding the Bible and world religions. I'm sure you could give some great insight as to why this is a problem that needs addressing and how we as the church can go about fixing this. Sorry if this is wordy. (laughs) I'm a writer by profession. Thanks for all you do. Blessings, Mary Rose. Mary Rose, thank you for writing in. And I'm sorry I didn't give this an entire episode, but I really wanted to get to it as it relates to this because you nailed something. You really did. Thank you. Your observation of the biblical illiteracy of our society, it's demonstrative of what so many Western Christians who've been secularized misunderstand. That sticking to the plain meaning of the Bible text doesn't mean stick to the simplistic meaning. This this principle, it's not a gimme principle of interpretation. It's not the softball principle for our day and age, not for us. It may have been in, in RSL's day, Robert Louis Stevenson's day, this may have been a very simple principle to, to stick with, to not like overthink the Bible passage. I don't know. But in our day and age, this is not a gimme. It requires work to understand the plain meaning because it requires knowing the scriptures and it requires knowing the power therein. It means we have to read our Bibles, study them, live in the word of God, and gladly hear it and, and learn it and all of that, that we have got to the point of needing to have Bible references noted when reading classic Western fiction, that's an indictment on Christ's people. This is why so many people are being led astray today, be it by dispensationalists or by trans bishops or or 
fill in the blank. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know the power within them, the power of the Holy Spirit to protect us from false teaching, the power that enables us to believe in Christ and see that he is our everything so that we're not searching the scriptures, looking for end times prophecies and dates and events that that back up our presuppositions, but we're actually searching scripture, looking for Jesus, not a nation state of Israel, Jesus, the holy of holies. It's not found in man-made a man-made temple or tent, but in the heavenly tent. Yes, in the very word of Scripture as well. Thank you, Mary Rose. This is of concern to us, that we don't even know our own history in our day and age. And, and we're on cruise control. And we don't act like it's a big deal. We act like it, either two things here, that the text should be just obvious to us when we open it up, and we'll just take this... You know, charismatic, enthusiastic approach. And, oh, this was meaning for me today. God must have wanted me to open this page. It's not, it's not a talisman. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a fortune cookie. But we treat it like that. Or we just say, oh, it's too, too intense, too deep. I don't know any of this. So I'm just not going to even bother with it. And I'm just going to, I'm going to watch movies instead. I'm going to, I'm going to dive into pop culture. I'm not even going to know what these references are. And that's sad because we lose, not only do we lose out on knowing what scripture is saying, but we really lose out on a culture that could be beautiful and rich and intense in its own right. The, the original readers of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde got much more out of the story than we do. We have to have helps, and that is sad. So thanks, Mary Rose, for writing in. I really appreciate it. And I'm a fan of yours. I'm a fan of yours. We're out of time, friends. Thanks for tuning in. Until next week, remember that Christ is your king, dear saints. You are the new Israel. Amen. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at kfuo.org.